Welcome to Dying to Race, a podcast about those who are willing to pay the ultimate price for that top place on the podium. This is not made to glorify death in racing, it's to understand the people behind the story and whether the world of motorsport learnt from what happened. My name's Lee and I enjoy all kinds of motorsport. I have a true passion for cars and I'm also a racing driver myself. I will be covering all forms of motorsport, from rallying to motorcycle racing to F1 and everything in between. So why choose a relative unknown to do a podcast about? I think mainly because he kind of come from nothing. He was from a small town in America and he just had a dream to be able to compete at the highest level of the sport that he chose to do. I say he had a good start with his dad starting things off and I suppose also just the, the, the generic, in the nicest way, mundane way that he crashed. It was just a, a kind of another oval event going round a round the track and then just hitting the sidewall. It happens thousands of times and, and gladly most of the time it, it turns out okay. But it's just the kind of manner that it happened. Any other way, if he hit the wall slightly differently, side on, so on and so forth, things might be a bit different today. It's also interesting that way that he crashed and what happened over these kind of few months of NASCAR, although Tony wasn't in NASCAR, he wasn't racing NASCAR, there were other driver deaths. So it's the kind of legacy that come from that, the way that the sport changed, the way things were done and brought in new safety measures and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, the reason being is because Tony died. So he ultimately left a legacy which made NASCAR and oval racing much safer. So in that respect, he might not be a huge name, he might not be well known, he might not be known by anyone, but the way in which he died laid the foundations for which NASCAR has followed and improved things. So he plays a big part in the history and he's probably not given enough credit for that in itself. So he lived and loved motorsport he died because of motorsport and he left a lasting legacy because of motorsport. So, I mean, all in all, he is an interesting chap. So I think that's why I chose him for this episode. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. Thank you. Anthony Roper, or Tony, was born on December the 13th, 1964, in Springfield, Missouri, to Dean Roper and Shirley Medley. Tony had a sister, Kim, but he was an only son who definitely took after his dad. Growing up, Tony was super involved in motorsport, mainly due to his dad. Dean was a decent racer in the Automobile Racing Club of America, ARCA, a stock car racing series affiliated to NASCAR. For those who may not be too familiar with stock car racing, it's essentially racing primarily on oval tracks, but does take place on traditional circuits. Originally, it was for production model cars, hence the name stock cars. It's such a depth in history, which I cannot go into now, but I'm sure you've all seen NASCAR and know how insane it is and the speed these people do round an oval track. The racing on oval tracks can either be on dirt or tarmac. So clearly, 
Tony was destined to follow in his dad's footsteps into stock car racing, and that's exactly what he did. In 1986, he pulled on the racing overalls and took to the oval. Tony raced in the IMCA Modifieds. I had to look these things up, and they're pure madness. They're like a hybrid of a stock car and also an open-wheel car, so it's kind of looks like a proper car at the back, and then you're kind of missing the front wings. It's, uh, it's bizarre. You also have a very tight budget cap where you can only spend $1,050 on an engine. There are different divisions in Modifieds, each bringing their own set of rules. Ultimately, it was much closer to grassroots racing, but a step ladder towards NASCAR. Tony stuck with this for six years, gaining valuable experience. In 1992, he managed to bag second place in the American Speed Association Rookie of the Year Award the sanctioning body for oval and track racing that Tony raced in. It hasn't been active since 2014 and is probably famous over here in the UK for bringing stock car racing series ASCAR, Anglo-American Stock Car Racing, where the Stig, Ben Collins, Tiffany Dell from Top Gear and various other bits and pieces, Colin McRae, Jason Plato, Matt Neal had all dabbled in it. Unfortunately, it went under in 2008. The big step up for Tony came in 1995, where he took part in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series. Essentially think of NASCAR and chop the back off a bit and make it into a pickup truck. It's usually used as a stepping stone to NASCAR, perhaps a bit like F3 before making the big step up to F2. These trucks today have 750 brake horsepower and go 180 miles an hour. In his first season with MB Motorsports, Tony managed only 219 points from the 20 race series. However, he only entered three events and one of these he didn't manage to qualify. Taken a year out, Tony came back for the 97-98 Craftsman Truck Series with Brevac Racing with a much healthier 2,604 point haul and getting 18th in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck classification over a 26 race season. He started also with Brevac Racing for the 97-98 season, but finished it with Gloy Rahal Racing, with a respectable 16th overall. It was in 1999 that Tony competed for the first time in the Bush Series, now called the Xfinity Series. It's NASCAR's second-tier race series, and they usually support the NASCAR main event. So it was going extremely well for Tony, and he was within touching distance of NASCAR. In his first season, and missing the first four races, Tony managed 41st overall and had a high of 8th at the South Boston Speedway, racing for the Express Motorsports team. As the new millennium came about, Tony had moved up through the ranks and was within touching distance of a seat in a full-fat NASCAR. Washington Irving Motorsports gave him his seat in their Chevy pickup, but he had a bad start to the season, only qualifying three times out of 12 attempts. Tony dropped back down to the Craftsman Truck Series to get some more racing in and gain some valuable experience. His old friends at MB Motorsports took him back for their 18th race of the season. Tony only managed 30th at the Indianapolis Speedway Park, 34th at the Nashville Super Speedway, a season high of 21st at Richmond Raceway, and that brings us up to the O'Reilly 400 at the Texas Motor Speedway. The Texas Motor Speedway is what you imagine an oval track to look like, with a smaller traditional racing circuit inside the oval. 
at one and a half miles long with a banking of 20 degrees in the first two turns and 24 in the final two. The standout thing is that the stadium running around the track is enormous and is one of the largest motorsport venues in the world. It can house 200,000 people. It's colossal and was only five years old when Tony and the team visited. It was Friday, October the 13th. Tony was 36 laps into the 400 kilometer race. He came round the final corner in his Ford truck, leading down the front stretch. He was squeezed by two other trucks, but made contact with Steve Grissom's Dodge. It was nothing more than what looked like a gentle nudge, but at such high speeds coming round a bend, it was enough to spin Tony clockwise into the concrete wall, almost hitting it face on. The truck bounced backwards towards the rest of the racers, specifically Steve Grissom. A ball of smoke enveloped the truck and sparks could be seen underneath. Steve, with nowhere to go, hit Tony again as they disappeared into smoke and sparks moving along the speedway at a rate of knots. Another truck saw what was happening dived off into the infield to miss the carnage. As Tony and Steve's trucks danced together before hitting the infield themselves, separating, with Steve managing to keep his truck straight and joining the track after a bit of off-road driving. Tony, however, came to a stop in a cloud of dust and smoke, partially on the grass. The front of the truck was completely missing. As the dust settled, there wasn't any movement from the truck, and seconds later, the rescue crew arrived to a devastating scene. They looked panicked as they worked to release Tony from the mangled wreck. Tony was airlifted to Dallas Partland Memorial Hospital, the same place that JFK was taken after his fatal shooting. The hospital staff done everything they could, but Tony's injuries were so severe. He'd made it through the night, but at 10.55am, the day after the crash, he succumbed to his injuries and passed away with his wife Michelle at his side. He was aged just 35. The crash had caused such severe neck injury. Called a basilar skull fracture, it happens at the point where the skull and the neck join. This managed to stop blood flow to Tony's brain, essentially leaving him brain dead. He was the first fatality at the Texas Motor Speedway. It was going to be a very grim season for NASCAR as they lost two other drivers in a five-month period. The documentary three before February, documents this sad time by remembering Tony, Adam Petty and Kenny Irwin, which can be seen in its entirety on YouTube. Undoubtedly, I will be looking at these two at some point in the future. There were concerns after his death coming from kart drivers. Although these cars are a lot faster than Tony's truck, it could have still been part of the issue. ABC News done a piece about what the problem may have been. Cart drivers knew something wasn't right as they practiced at the Texas Motor Speedway. They just didn't realise most of them were experiencing similar symptoms after dizzying laps. It was a problem all of these drivers were experiencing, but they had no clue what they were experiencing, said Michael Andretti. Dr Steve Olvey, Cart's medical director, said the first indication of a problem came Friday when two drivers, that he didn't name, pulled off the track after long stints said they were dizzy and disorientated. Olvi said extended exposure to the G-force felt in practice up to five and a half Gs 
could have caused some drivers to lose consciousness during the race. The reason they gave was due to the curvature of the track and the fact that even the cart cars could take the corners flat out. The extra g-force would have been felt by the slower trucks. Could this have been a reason for Tony losing control? The possibility is there, but sometimes it can be a lack of concentration for a split second that can turn the world on its head. So what, if anything, could have saved Tony? Oval tracks can't really have any runoff lanes due to their nature. So unlike F1, there is very little margin for error when travelling at ridiculous speeds. It's also a given that two decades later, vehicles of all sorts are stronger and better made than ever before. However, in 2002, the safer barrier was introduced at Indianapolis Speedway. This came about directly due to Tony, Dale and Kenny all dying within that five-month period. A legacy that has 100% saved other drivers. The barrier is a steel and foam energy reduction design. A race car going 180 mile an hour has nine times more energy to get rid of than a passenger car going 60 mile an hour, said Deandra Leslie Pelecki, author of the book the physics of NASCAR, the science behind the speed. That's about as much kinetic energy as stored in 2.2 pounds of TNT. So these safer barriers were made to dissipate some of that energy. Undoubtedly, it would have improved the odds of Tony surviving. But it would be the safer barrier combined with another device that would mean almost without doubt, Tony would still be with us. The hands device. Hands simply stands for head and neck support. It's such a simple piece of kit that has already saved dozens of lives. Even the most innocuous crashes, like Dale Earnhardt Jr's at Daytona 500, can kill. It didn't look spectacular like some oval crashes, but essentially the same thing happened to Dale as it did to Tony. The basilar fracture of the head being whipped forwards and backwards. The hands device sits over the shoulders of the driver, a headpiece almost like a car headrest, but thinner is attached to the back of it. From this headpiece comes two straps that attach to the crash helmet. Once the driver is strapped into the car, the head is held in place, and if an accident were to happen, the head stays in line with the back. There is no whipping about that can cause the injury. Basilar fractures usually cause death to the driver immediately, but rarely they do survive. NASCAR's Ernie Irvin and F1's Felipe Strife are prime examples and both continue to have decent careers. The combination of the safer barrier and the hands device, there would have been a good chance that Tony would still be with us today. However, this isn't where the story ends for the Roper family. After losing Tony, just a year later they lost his dad Dean whilst he was racing. Although it wasn't a direct racing incident that killed him, he was on a track. He died of a heart attack whilst behind the wheel of his Mueller brothers racing Ford, taking part in the 2001 Paradise 100 at Springfield Mile. This was part of the Arca stock car series Tony started out in. Dean was on the 17th lap when the Ford slowed down and bounced continually off the wall, eventually by accident entering the pit, smashing up equipment and making people flee. The car came to a stop and he was dragged out to be treated and he was whisked away to hospital where he's pronounced dead aged 62. An extremely sad turn of events for the Roper family to deal with. The death of Tony and then just a year later losing Dean. They both lived a life doing what they enjoyed most, racing. 
and if one thing is for sure, they wouldn't have wanted to ever change that. Tributes did come in for Tony after his death, and you can clearly see that he was loved by his local community. There's an article online that I've found that was written quite a few years ago, and I've essentially pinched the best bits from it, just to give you a feeling as to what people thought of Tony. I hate October every year, Tony's mum said last week, as the leaves begin the annual colour change. When the accident happened, I knew right away that it was bad. He could have made a wonderful father, but he never got that chance. But he got to do what he loved. That's the only way I can look at it. It hit everyone in our town hard. It shook the town to its core. David Bates, a high school classmate and one of Tony Roper's closest friends, said recently. More than 600 people, including several NASCAR dignitaries, attended Roper's funeral at the Fairgrove High School gymnasium. There were racing-themed floral arrangements with Roper's truck number 26 everywhere. It doesn't seem like 15 years have passed, said Dale Roper, Tony's uncle. You never get over it. You think about it every day. You could tell he was a talented race car driver, Monette Speedway promoter Randy Munningham said. He put a lot of effort into it and he had a great right foot. It took a lot from the driver to get one of those modifieds around the track because they didn't handle that well. He could be kind of hard to get to know, but once you got to know him, what a great guy he was, and we had a lot of fun together. He was definitely a workaholic. Tony really thought that he was going to make his big break, said Mike Mittler, who signed Roper to drive the three truck series races in 1995. I know that I can get the job done, but it's good to be with a good team, Roper said June 2000 with the news leader newspaper. I feel I haven't had the opportunity to shine yet. While Roper did not make it into NASCAR's Major League, the Sprint Cup Series, Dale Roper said his nephew's career is a big piece of the Ozarks' rich racing history. He wasn't ever going to make Sprint Cup, and he had resigned himself to that, Dale Roper said. But like movie stars, very few make it at the very top level, but you can still make a very good living by being a supporting actor. Dale Roper often wonders what might have been. He said that Tony told him a few months before the accident that he probably was only going to drive a race car for a year or two more. Tony Roper had his eye on the future of becoming a car chief or crew chief, the most top-level job outside the cockpit. There's no doubt in my mind that he would have been a superstar as a crew chief, Mittler said. He had the knowledge and the work ethic. There we have it, the story of Tony Roper, quite a short one, but it's nice to always pick a driver that quite a few people have probably never heard of, a bit of a lower level. I could have gone in there with kind of the more well-known deaths in NASCAR, but I don't know much about NASCAR, and it's interesting to kind of learn a little bit about it by doing a, a little bit of uh, looking into what it all involves, and to learn about Tony and that he was just an average guy who had a dad that had a passion for racing and he followed in them footsteps. You hear the story over and over again and it's just sad how it turned out. He was kind of right at the precipice of kind of getting into NASCAR and just making that big step up and doing it. But ultimately it wasn't to be. It's such a sad story 
I mean, age 35, he was probably getting on as a racing driver by then. So, like he said, maybe a year or two and then get into the other side of things. It's just a shame that perhaps he didn't do it a year or two earlier. But that's the story of Tony Roper. Thank you for listening to Dine to Race. I've been Lee, and if you've enjoyed the show, then please give it a good rating. If not, let me know what I could do better, or if you have any comments or thoughts on today's episode, or any ideas on a future one, then you can email me at pmeracing1984 at gmail.com. That's P-M-E-R-A-C-I-N-G 1984 at gmail.com. Also, you can pick up my own personal racing channel on any social media at halfcarted. At H-A-L-F-K-A-R-T-E-D on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook and TikTok. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time.